Okay. <laughs> you guys can have a seat. Some of you are all thinking, like, that's the strangest worship song I've ever heard. Uh, that's a Johnny Cash song. If you haven't been with us, the series that we're in, has been, we've been using that song for our little uh, pre-sermon video. I was like, Brian, we should sing that. But here's the fun thing about Brian. Brian's like one of those wind-up toys. Super fun. But sometimes they get away from me and they go screaming across the kitchen floor. And, uh, and you just have to kind of enjoy it as it happens. So, Brian, thanks for that. Uh, appreciate the creativity there. And it uh, uh, feels like we should get up here and start talking about hell after that song. Like, God, God's going to cut you down, boy. Uh, no, but we're not. So um, uh, if we have not met, my name is Justin. I'm the lead pastor here at Fieldstone, and we are continu- continuing our series in Judges today. But first, um, I've had a chance to kind of enjoy a weekend, love my wife, love my kids. There's something special about a couple days without him. Am I right, men? Right? They just have a chance to kind of watch, watch the movies that nobody else wants to watch. And so I, have, I always kind of keep my list. I keep an eye on those things as they uh, come on to uh, start streaming. I can watch them because... I just like movies that my wife and kids don't like. Uh, in particular, I like those movies with the characters where um, the main character is that combination of they're the best of the best and they're the last resort. What I mean is that these, these people are super skilled, they're experienced, they're hardened in combat, they get the job done, but they're the last person you want to call because they have this dark past, tragic backstory. They've made some mistakes. They accidentally nuked Australia at one point. Everybody's like, oh, we can't, can't use that person anymore. They've written them off. They're holding them down. They've left for dead. They sometimes locked them in prison. These people are broken, right? There's something about them that just isn't right. Um, but in the situation in the movie, they, they've tried everything else. They've looked every other direction. No one else can get the job done, and so they have to go and get that one character, right? And they're like, but it's been 35 years since she escaped from Alcatraz. What do we even know about her? Like, he he was disavowed by his own country. We don't, even if we wanted to use him, we couldn't know where to find him. And then it flashes to a scene in an underground fight club in Southeast Asia, 75-year-old man winning bare-knuckle boxing matches. Very clearly, he's been living off rice and steroids for the last 25 years, and he is just ready to go. That is what we find in our next line of unlikely heroes in the book of Judges, that type of character, perhaps the most unlikely of heroes that we find in the whole book, definitely the darkest backstory of them all. It's a guy named Jephthah. So as we come to the uh, end of Judges chapter 10, we see the nation of Israel still stuck in this vicious cycle of obedience and blessing, disobedience, some type of punishment or consequence, and then they have to come running back to God in repentance to for him to raise up a leader, raise up a judge to deliver them from their oppression. Um, And as we see throughout the book, a major theme is that things keep getting worse and worse and worse. And alongside that, the quality of the heroes gets worse and worse and worse. They get more and more and more broken. This particular time, the Israelite people are being oppressed by the Ammonites, and they are oppressing them from the east. Um, And so they're The whole nation is being impacted, but one particular large family tree of the Gileadites is experiencing it a little bit worse than everyone else. And everyone is scared. No one seems to be willing to step up and take care of this issue. And so the leaders of this tribe raise the stakes and say, all right, whoever gets the job done, whoever can take care of this Ammonite problem, not only do you get to be the hero, you get to be in charge of everything. 
You get to be the leader, the president. Whatever their ruler was, they got to take that. But they're desperate because no one else wants to do it. And so they find themselves in a situation where they have no one left to ask except for one person. And you can kind of see some of the backroom conversations happening. Like, oh, we we got to call him. We, we don't want, remember what we did. We, he, we, he can't be the guy. He's the only guy, right? And all these things are happening. No one wants to ask him, but they have to. And so now we can flash to a dark village and an aging gentleman doing chin-ups off a cliff. And we find our hero in Judges chapter 11. Let's read the backstory here. Judges 11.1. Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead. His mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also bore him sons, and when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. You are not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a gang of scoundrels gathered around him and followed him. Sometime later, when the Ammonites were fighting against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Come, they said, be our commander so we can fight the Ammonites. Jephthah said, didn't didn't you hate me and drive me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? The elders said to him, Nevertheless, we're turning to you now. Come with us to fight the Ammonites, and you will be head over all of us who live in Gilead. Jephthah answered, Suppose you take me back to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them to me. Will I really be your head? The elders of Gilead replied, The Lord is our witness. We will certainly do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and commander over them. So what a backstory, right? Like, this is a very dark, uh, difficult backstory. It's sad. He's re rejected by his family for something completely out of his control. And while he's in exile, apparently he built some type of a reputation. as Because um, Joe did uh, Gideon last week, and talked about how the angel of the Lord shows up and says, Hey, mighty warrior to this individual Gideon who is far from a mighty warrior. He had no reputation in battle. Weak individual from a weak family, from a weak tribe. Jephthah is the opposite. Apparently Jephthah had built this reputation as someone who could not only handle himself, but lead others in battle. Even though he didn't have the cleanest record, they came to him because even though they didn't like him, even though he's a wild card, a little bit like Brian the wind-up toy, right? A lot of fun until he gets away. He's the best they've got. And so they call Jephthah, and he immediately goes to work. Verse 12 says, Jephthah sent messengers to the Ammonite king with the question, what do you have against me that you have attacked my country? Classic tragic hero thing, right? Like the whole country is being oppressed, and he's like, what do you have against me? It just totally makes it personal. Moves on to verse 13. The king of the Ammonites answered, when Israel came up out of Egypt, so he's referring back to the Exodus, right? Across the Red Sea, through the wilderness, into the Promised Land. When the Israelites did that, they took away my land all the way to the Jordan. Now give it back peaceably. So he says, what, what, what do you have? Why this tension? What, what's going on here? Why are you oppressing my people? Why, are you, why do you have this issue with us? Why do you have this issue with me? And the king says, I'm not causing any trouble. I'm just trying to take back a section of land that's always been rightfully ours. I'm like... Is this President Putin here in Judges? Like, what's going on here? It's funny if you watch the news. So Jephthah calls him out. So, so this king is like, this section of land, it, it was ours. It should be ours. I'm simply coming back to reclaim what is ours. But Jephthah brought receipts and calls him out 
on his lies. Because actually, Jephthah, Jephthah, if we were to read the next few verses, says actually what happened is when we were coming up out of Egypt into the land, we tried to pass through your territory peacefully. We didn't want your land. We didn't want to conquer you. We had no issues with you, just wanted to use your land to pass through. And in fact, we were so respectful, we sent people ahead to your king and said, hey, can we pass through? We got no beef. We just want to pass through your land. Your king said no, and out of respect, we went the long way around your land. Well, Jephthah says, your king got nervous, and he sent troops to the border just in case things got interesting. And in the midst of that, your country, your people started a fight, and we finished it. And the rest is history. In fact, Jephthah says, for 300 years now, everyone has understood. You understand how it went down. We understand how it went down. And only now are you making an issue of it. And so now you are being an instigator. And now my God gets to decide how this finishes. And so the king, as always happens in life, is proven wrong and ignores the message. Right? That's how it always works. You, you finally get somebody, you say the right thing, you get the last word, and they're like, whatever, I don't even care what you have to say. That's how it goes down. And here's, we come to the moment with Jephthah that happens with every hero in the book of Judges, every individual. It's the catalyst for anything good that happens in this book, throughout Scripture, and in any of our lives, Judges 11.29, then the Spirit of the Lord fell on Jephthah. God shows up. Just like with the other heroes that we've talked about, just like with Gideon, just like we'll see with Samson next week, God pours out his spirit on an individual, and all of a sudden anything becomes possible, and he leads them into battle. But here's the thing. Jephthah has a history. Jephthah is broken. And so when God promises victory, that's not enough for Jephthah. When God pours out his spirit on him, that's not enough for Jephthah. So he goes a step further because of his past because of his insecurities, because of his disappointments, because of his lack of understanding of how God works, Jephthah takes a big, ugly step beyond what God had asked him to do. Let's check it out in chapter 11, verse 30. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. He said, If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into his hands. He devastated 20 towns as far as Abel, Karamim, thus Israel subdued Ammon. So they get their victory. Jephthah gets his victory. The Israelites get their freedom. Not because of Jephthah. Not because of the vow he made. It says that God delivered them. But we've got to talk about this vow for a second. This vow is the potential for all kinds of mess. First of all, it's stupid. How dumb could he be? What, what, what's likely to come out of his door? Maybe his wife? Maybe one of his kids? Maybe his favorite dog? Right. So best case scenario in this whole thing is that he loses his favorite dog. Potentially worse, that this is a major risk and he has zero control over how this plays out. It's a stupid vow. In addition to being stupid, completely unnecessary. What Jephthah is doing here is he's placing his trust in something in addition to God. Think about it. He just got telling this other evil king about all the things that God had done for his people throughout the centuries. God guiding them. God fighting. God winning the battles. God gave. God has driven. The Lord will decide. And then there's these previous generations of leaders throughout the book of Judges that Jephthah can look back on and see God working, see God moving as his Holy Spirit is poured out on them. So why the need for the extra junk on top of that? 
But isn't that what we do when it comes to faith? We hedge our bets, maintain our fallback option, and even if we don't say it out loud, we rarely do. What we're actually saying with our actions is, hey, just in case God doesn't come through, just in case God doesn't show up, I've got this other thing ready to go. So often I think it's less likely, especially among churchy people like us, I think we're less likely to choose something instead of God and far more likely to add something in addition to God. It's a lot more subtle. It's harder to, harder to see, harder for others to call out in our lives, but I think it's something that we do far too often. This vow that he's making, he's, he's offering something to God that God never asked for. He's bargaining with God, bartering for his favor, trying to maybe buy his love or earn his love. This probably goes back to his exposure to false gods and false idols from the nations around them. These, these false gods who did ask for special gifts and these false gods who did try to barter with them and I'll do this for you if you do that for me. And these things trickled in to their faith in God. And that's what I think happened with Jephthah. But God makes it clear throughout Scripture he says, I've called you, I've raised you up, I've shown you favor, I've empowered you, I've promised to be with you and deliver you and provide for you. Now go and just do what I've called you to do. Do what I've empowered you to do, what I've commanded you to do in the midst of a right relationship with me. God says, I don't need your opinions, I don't need your sacrifices, I don't need you to be a victim. I don't need you to fight all these other battles that I never asked you to fight. In fact, maybe I've asked others to fight those battles. I don't need you. Just do what I say. Some of you have experienced that with your kids before. Maybe a new employee or an intern, maybe a student that you've taught, maybe an athlete that you've coached. You're like, hey, thank, thanks for doing all that. I ask you to do that. Thanks for running over there. I asked you to run here. Thanks for doing all that. Will you just do what I say? I think we find ourselves in that kind of a situation with God sometimes. And I think Jephthah finds himself in that type of a situation here. Let's see how it plays out with this vow. He has his victory. He returns home in verse 34. When Jephthah returned to his home, who should come out to meet him but his daughter? Dancing to the sound of timbrels. She was an only child, except for her he had neither son nor daughter. And when he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, Oh no, my daughter! Yeah, idiot. Stupid. Just want to reach in and strangle this dude. You've brought me down and I am devastated. I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. Actually, Jephthah, you could have broken it. Why didn't he break it? If I break this vow, something bad might happen to me. Guess I better take out my daughter. My father, she replied, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you promised, now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies. But grant me this one request. And this gets a little weird. We're going to talk about this. Give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends because I will never marry. You may go, he said. And he let her go for two months. She and her friends went into the hills and wept because she would never marry. After the two months, she returned to her father, and he did to her as he had vowed, and she was a virgin. From this comes the Israelite tradition that each year the young women of Israel go out for four days to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite. So the daughter comes out, he's like, oh, no, I didn't think that this would happen. I thought it would be the mouse that we keep in the kitchen. Like, just some ridiculous thing. Again, God never asked for this, but as God's people repeatedly strayed further and further away from him, what a sign at how messed up this culture had gotten in the book of Judges. 
Not only that he would make a vow that ridiculous, not only that he would uh, follow through on a vow that ridiculous, but that his daughter would hear about this ridiculous vow and go along with it. Like something horrible had happened in the nation of Israel for them to get to this point. Quick side note. Take a couple minutes because you're like, did he? Did he kill his daughter? It's a great question. And so just to squash maybe my own nightmares as we think about this potential story, something I see here. Uh, verse 31, as you dig a little bit deeper, says, whatever comes out of the house meets me when I return um, will be the Lord's and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. So that word and in the original language is often used for or. So it could be and I will sacrifice it or it could be it will be the Lord's or I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. And to me, the rest of the, the thing plays out, the rest of it makes more sense if it's an or. Because even if, think about it, even if it was an animal that came out first, there are many animals, including the ones that live in his house, that would be unacceptable sacrifices to the Lord according to the Old Testament law. Child sacrifice is very clearly detestable to God based on Old Testament law. And then you take the emphasis on she'll never marry. Right? If she's about to die, we're talking about probably a young teen, some, some type of a teenager, certainly there's more to mourn here than the fact that she's never going to get married. Right? Potentially she's being offered as a burnt offering before a God that never asked for it. Right? So it appears to me that the mourning is not about being killed, but that she and Jephthah will no longer have a lineage to pass down. She's an only child, so he'll never have grandchildren. She'll never marry. I believe that she's being committed to a life of ministry. You see this uh, with Samuel uh, later on in Israel's history where Samuel's mother was desperate for a child and when God grants it, she commits him back to the Lord and he spends his life serving in the temple and as a prophet. So I believe she's being committed to ministry and a life of celibacy based on the vow that he made. And that makes sense with verse 40 as well where the young women of Israel go out for four days to celebrate her. Israel... The Jewish people had half dozen or more festivals and traditions that carried on for centuries, if not thousands of years. This one was not one of them. This one ended at some point. So I think it's far more likely that this was an annual pilgrimage for four days to go celebrate Jephthah's daughter in the flesh, where she was living, where she was serving and ministering before the Lord. And then that festival ended once she eventually died of old age as time went on. So he didn't necessarily sacrifice her as the vow started. But either way, what the heck, Jephthah? Like, what a mess. This is, and, and, and to land this thing, where, where does this take us? Because this guy, he was the last guy they wanted help from. He was the last guy they wanted in charge. He's the last guy he wanted in their family. It's a mess from start to finish, it gets messier if you, lead, if you read the next chapter. He only gets to lead for like six years until he dies. So something about his past maybe came up and he got taken out early. I don't know. And yet in the midst of this mess, in the midst of this brokenness, God showed up. And God gets the victory. And God uses this broken man to deliver his people. So what do I see in Jephthah? passage that comes to mind for me is 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And I'm going to read a couple verses, but when you get time today, go back and read this whole chapter. There are some potential life verses in this chapter. There are some verses for the refrigerator in this chapter. All kinds of goodness. But we're going to go verses 5 to 7. 2 Corinthians 4, 5 to 7. 
Paul says, for what we preach is not ourselves. He says, we're, we're not preaching us here. We're not preaching our power and our glory. What we preach is Jesus Christ as Lord and simply ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let, your, let light shine out of the darkness, for God, who said, let there be light, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory that's displayed in the face of Christ. And here's the big one, verse 7. But we have this treasure, God's glory, right? His image that we bear, his glory that we carry with us as his followers, the message of salvation, the gospel that we have. We have that treasure in jars of clay. Other translations say earthen vessels, these weak carriers of a treasure, something you would never put a treasure in because it gets old, it gets brittle, and it breaks, and you lose the treasure. We have this amazing treasure from God that we carry in jars of clay. That's us. Why, did, why is it us? Why are we weak? Why are we jars of clay? Well, it's to show that his all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. God used Jephthah, even though his pedigree was wrong, even though his situation was all wrong, his background was all wrong, his temperament was all wrong, his understanding of God was mostly wrong. Now, does that mean God is cool with what Jephthah's family did to him? No. Does that mean God was cool with Jephthah's faults that he brought to the table? No. Think of the brokenness that this guy experienced from birth. But God used him anyway for a very important purpose. I've got a quick two-minute clip I want to show you. This is from Pastor John Piper, who spends a couple minutes talking about this passage. Check it out. This conference is under the banner, Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. And I asked God, I said to him, God, is there something in this text that would just give me a clue? Why did you set it up this way that I have to be renewed every day? I mean, you, you could have just bumped me up to maximum sanctification and kept me there. You know how I know he could? Because he's going to do it when Jesus comes back. I'll never sin again after Jesus comes back. So why am I sinning now? I mean, Lord, just do that. You, you're going to do it then? Just do it now. And he says, not the plan. And, and to just go back and borrow the text from this morning, we have this treasure in jars of clay for a reason. Clay that needs to be renewed every day. Clay that can't stand on its own longer than 24 hours or on yesterday's grace for 24 hours so that the surpassing power will belong to God. And you can get in God's face about this and say, I don't like the plan. I don't like the plan that you leave me unsanctified and battling every way, every day with depletion, having to be renewed on grace every day. I don't like the plan. I'd just like to be done with the battle. And he say, well, that's the plan. And the reason it's the plan, I've given you some clues. I'm going to get some glory in your life. If you didn't do it this way, you know what? You'd get uppity about it. You'd think you had it made. You'd think it would start coming from you. The fact that you run out of gas every day puts you in the station. That's me. So God, God has his reasons for why he saves us in stages. Sanctifies us slowly, makes us fill up every day at his pump. 
lest we forget where the gas comes from. At times, even the brightest and best find ways to screw it up, make it more messy, pervert God's plan, abuse his power. But the weakness of the vessel, the failure of the messenger, does not diminish the power and the value of the message. It doesn't diminish the power and the value of the plan. It doesn't diminish the power and the value of the God who originated it. In fact, in the midst of the brokenness, it drives the messenger back in full reliance to the source of the message. And it makes it far more obvious where the message is coming from, where the truth is coming from, where the power and the provision are coming from. Team's going to come and lead us in a couple more songs to close things out today, but you need to know that we serve a big God with a big plan, and he regularly and successfully uses broken people, jars of clay, weak vessels. He uses broken people to accomplish his purposes, and that includes you. Would you stand with me? We're going to sing these couple of songs. One of them, the first one you'll recognize, it's called You Say, and, and it talks about how we, we bring so many things to the table that we struggle with. I, I'm not measuring up. I'm not feeling what I need to feel. I'm, I'm not doing what I need to do. And that God says back to us, no, there's some things I have to say about you. And then the second one is called More Than Enough. And it's a reminder that in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our weaknesses, in the midst of our areas where we feel like we don't measure up, God comes in and says, you know what? That might be true. With me, I am more than enough. I will be everything that you need. Yeah, you might be rejected. Yeah, you might be despised. There might be areas in your life where you're not measuring up, but God is enough to cover it. Father, we love you and we thank you for this opportunity to um, hear some truth. God, we would never wish brokenness on anyone, but we are thankful for the example of someone like Jephthah who had all kinds of issues, all kinds of darkness in his past, all kinds of struggles, and yet, God, you reached down, you poured out your Holy Spirit on his life, and you did amazing things through him. God, may we learn from him and not add anything in addition to you, not offer you things you never asked for, not get distracted by battles that we want to fight that you never asked us to fight. God, help us to lean into the fact that you are enough, and no matter what we might say about ourselves, you have